Hello, and welcome to Prophetic Voices, Preaching and Teaching Beloved Community, a podcast from the Episcopal Church's Office of Reconciliation, Justice, and Creation Care, where we explore the season and the lectionary through the lens of social justice. I'm your host, Reverend Shaniqua, Staff Officer for Racial Reconciliation, and I'm so glad you could join us. In this episode of Prophetic Voices, we'll be discussing the Easter Vigil, exploring the readings at the beginning of the service, especially Exodus and the Gospel of Mark. Our prophetic guests this week are the Reverend Phil Hooper, who serves as curate at Trinity Episcopal Church, Fort Wayne in the Diocese of Northern Indiana. The extraordinary R.G. Manolis works in the community development field at my alma mater, the University of Minnesota Morris. She is also a foster parent, adoptive parent, and a spiritual director. And last but not least, Dr. David O'Hara is chair of the religion department at Augustana University in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, where he also directs programs in philosophy, environmental studies, and sustainability. Welcome, my resurrection friends. I kind of wanted to just go around and ask each of you, what is important to keep in mind for Easter Vigil this year or Easter in general this year? And Archie, how about you start? Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been thinking about that question and we're in such an interesting historical moment, right? With the pandemic, um, the fight for racial justice, environmental justice. Um, and I hate to call them fights. I probably shouldn't have used that word, but I think that this is a time where we can take a step back and think about what resurrection means in the context of this historical moment. Like what, what um, needs to be resurrected within ourselves? How can we understand the story of the resurrection, the intimate moments that preceded it and, and all that came afterwards in the context of this historical moment? So, yeah. Phil, how about you? Yeah, Archie just used the word context and that that was a key word for me as I was reflecting on this because to me, that's what Easter Vigil is. It, it is the context of who we are as a Christian people. And it allows us to sort of see how whatever it is that we're living through fits into the bigger story of God's loving liberation uh, activity in the world. And so this year, maybe more than any in recent memory, we need to know how this uh, this moment fits into a bigger uh, a bigger story. And so for me, I think the Easter Vigil feels especially important this year. And I just, I would, I, I'm also hoping that folks don't skip it because of the complications of, of liturgy and gathering. I hope that we all find a way to mark it, even if it is maybe a little different than it would normally be. Dave, how about you? So uh, I, I've been reading recently the Korean philosopher Byung-Chul Han, who talks about the problem of our modern age being one where all days are equal. And when all days are equal, then the weight of eternity is on every day the same way. And so as I come into this season, I feel like not just I need, but like all of us need the gift of liturgy and the gift of certain days mm. having a certain weight and a certain meaning so that other days don't have to. Uh, that I think this is true for the whole triduum, the whole of Holy Week and its context in the midst of between Lent and Pentecost as well. Mm -hmm. Thank you. 
So what liturgical suggestions do you all have for this service? That is such a hard one, right? Because it's such a participatory service. It's a service that's so tactile and so, um, so based in our sensory experience. The interesting thing is that I was raised Greek Orthodox, and although I attend a UCC church now, um, I attend Easter Vigil online. I've been doing that for many years because there isn't a Greek Orthodox um, church nearby. And so I've had the experience of being, um, being in a separate space. And I think what has worked for me is really making that space um, mm -hmm. the right space for myself to enter. And so if there are ways that pastors or priests, excuse me, <laughs> could, could um, kind of prepare their congregation for that. Like, what, what will you do to prepare your space? What will you do to, to show up in front of the screen um, in a way that, that works for you, right? And so I don't know, I don't have more specifics than that, but I think having that conversation with congregations ahead of time is important because I had mm -hmm. to sort of figure it out and muddle through it myself. So I'm interested to see, you know, how that plays out. Absolutely. Yeah, last, last Easter, we were on lockdown of course, as well. And uh, I, I have to say the Easter vigil moment last year was an incredibly powerful and spiritual experience for me. We, we did not do one as a parish. We were sort of in this, I think, state of confusion. And so we had figured out some solutions for other parts of Holy Week, but the vigil kind of got pushed back. So um, my partner and I, we just, we were together in person in my apartment and we lit a candle and we sat in the dark and we read the stories and we read the texts as best we could. And it was a little bit messy and a little bit imperfect and certainly not as grand as, as some of the liturgies that we might expect, but it was deeply moving. Uh, I remember just sort of sitting in the dark with tears welling up in my eyes. And, mm. and I think there's something to be said for uh, this, the, the power of these stories that were given in the vigil text, um, that, that they can be sufficient. So I think making that invitation for people to do that at home, if that's what needs to be done, and whether there's a way to you know connect people on Zoom for part of that or some other means, but certainly uh, giving people the tools to, to do this in their own spaces, if that's what's needed, uh, I think it can still be a deeply moving experience. I can imagine the disciples gathered wondering where Jesus is, what has happened, and feeling probably a mm. lot like many of us have felt right now. Absolutely. Uh, separate, alone, apart, wondering what comes next, when will this end? So in answer to your question, I want to say cherish the light, but not just cherish the light, but cherish the way that we have the all these senses that we have the sounds of Easter Vigil and the light of Easter Vigil. Uh, to follow on uh, on what Argy and Philip said, just to, if you can touch someone uh, or if you can touch something, uh, this I, I don't often think of this as an, uh, a time of celebrating incarnation. That's I, I think of that you know more in terms of, uh, of Epiphany, but. Uh, I think this is a time to celebrate incarnation and a time to identify with Thomas and say, I want to touch. I don't, I don't, I don't want to just hear the story. I want to touch mm. and see with my eyes. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So stories are such an important part of any culture. And 
I don't know why it took me this long to figure that out, but like, or I think I knew that inherently, but like this year reading all of the stories that we read from the Old Testament that, that kind of happened as part of that Easter vigil, it's hitting me so different this year. And, and I'm just remembering also like as Lakota, you know, the stories are so important and wintertime is the time to tell stories. And so at least in this Northern hemisphere, right? We're on the winter. And so it makes sense to be telling all these stories of salvation, but how, how did these stories hit you this year? And, and maybe which one is your favorite? So I, I really love Ezekiel 37 and I didn't always love it. It's, it's sort of a new love. Um, it showed up, it shows up in the Greek Orthodox um, Holy Week services at the very end of a long, grueling three to four hour Good Friday <laughs> service. And it's the very last, um, well, third to last thing that's read. And if you get that far, it's just like this amazing um, opening to, to the idea of resurrection. And the reason I think that I've come to love it, I thought it was just sort of gross and horrifying when I was a kid, I, I have to admit. Um, but the reason I've come to love it is... Um, Jesus's resurrection is so private. No one actually sees it happen, right? Like we mm. see him walking later, we walk with him later, um, but there's the empty tomb and there's something about this scene of um, all of these bones coming to life and slowly coming to life and taking on flesh. And, and I think about the sort of generational trauma that the Israelites had faced and how there's something about this moment that is about that trauma and about I don't want to say overcoming with it, but living with it, living through it, walking through it. And I think that's really important to be thinking and talking about this year because of the, you know, our focus on generational trauma that we're mm -hmm. seeing in the news that's very public and, and um, more present with people this year than other years, I think, because of George Floyd, George Floyd's murder, um, all of the other things that have happened in the last year. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. One of the things that I study a lot and teach about is water. And I was struck for the first time, I don't know why it's taken me 50 years to see this, but it struck for the first time the ways that God parts waters for us mm. and in these readings. The, the, there's a vertical parting of the waters in the story of creation. And there is a way made through the waters in the story of the ark and there is a horizontal parting of the waters in setting the captives free from Egypt. I don't know what to make of that, but it uh, it just, it struck me. It, it struck me as being uh, almost like uh, God saying to us again and again, there is no water for, that, uh, that I will not part for you. And there's no way in which mm. I can be prevented from parting waters for you. That felt to me like a really strong story of hope in water it's beautiful it's beautiful i have to say i i love the story of abraham and isaac and maybe that makes me super strange i don't know but i <laughs> i just i just love that story you know that that's a warm fuzzy bedtime story uh <laughs> No, but there's something that one stood out to me for some reason in reading them this year, precisely because it makes me uncomfortable. Um, mm. Because it is not a story that one can sort of tidily sum up with a, an easy moral or an easy 
way to say this is what it means. Um, and I feel like this year, certainly for so many of us, has been a year uh, that lacks easy answers, um, where, where we really have had to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Um, and I, I love the fact that scripture, that our holy stories, they are not all super tidy and that they often invite us to ask more questions than they give us answers. And so it's not so much that there's a particular message in Abraham and Isaac that I find, you know, perfectly wonderful for this year, but just the, the posture of the story and the way that it invites me to wonder and to be okay with wondering, uh, to imagine a God who is slightly beyond my comprehension. I think that's a good thing for all of us. Uh, and it's a humbling thing for me. I have I have never heard somebody describe the Akeda as a warm, fuzzy bedtime story. <laughs> <laughs> Nor have I. But you, what's wonderful about that, about your description there, is the fact that you said that got me thinking about it in a brand new way. I think that that's that's an, a, a promise uh, and and a possibility of there, there there will be how many homilies offered this Sunday and, and, and every Sunday, and yet every one of them could strike somebody as new. I, you, you also got me thinking about mm -hmm. the Noah story, which is that story that is supposedly a warm, fuzzy bedtime story, because how many children's books have been made about that? And it's, it's about a boat full yeah. of warm, mm -hmm. fuzzy creatures. And yet, it's also this <laughs> story of our sin and of the devastation of the world. As an environmental studies professor, I've been teaching that story a lot recently about the importance of building arcs, but also about the fact that the sea level is rising and we're the cause of it. And mm. it's not, not so much a warm, fuzzy story and there's extinction going on and we're the cause of it. That's again, not mm. a very warm, fuzzy story, mm. but we, there's, it's a story that we need to revisit and that we need to hear anew and to be reminded of, of mm -hmm. who we are. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think this whole year has been for everybody, regardless of how much privilege you have, um, a year where you have to face what is uncomfortable mm -hmm. or you really just won't survive. Right. You have to really be not just facing it, but be really present with it in your own life. And then as much as is possible that you can extend that to the suffering beyond yourself. And I've seen um, um I do spiritual direction work kind of on the side. I work as a, at a college as <laughs> my main job, but, um, but I've seen like really very beautiful and um, amazing awakenings that people are having in this time because of um, the changes that they've had to make in their lifestyle, because of the ways that they've had to encounter and re-encounter the news and the inability to shut it off um, in ways that they could in the past. And so I do think all of these stories collectively really call us to discomfort. I mean, mm. which you're all, you're both saying, right? That to discomfort rather than comfort and um, how resurrection kind of plays with that idea of discomfort of um, horror, really. I mean, because even the parting of the waters, so many people died because of the parting of those waters. And we don't know who those people were or what their motivations were for, for being on the other side, right? And so um, thinking about that and the divide in our in our country right now mm. that we're all all wrestling with, I think has been on my mind as I read through the, the readings over and over again, trying to to think about 
where they sit this year. Mm-hmm. The Exodus story is like the one that's required. Like you're required to read, I think, two or three of them. And some churches read all of them. Some read like five. Um, and then that Exodus is, is the required one. Um, and mm-hmm. RG, that's the one you just talked about. And in thinking about that, there's all, I usually have all kind of thoughts about that one. But I also, of course, I'm seeing like, I, I can't remember what his name is, but the one who did the Ten Commandments movie from way back in the day where, you know. Charlton um, Heston. Yeah, Charlton Heston. He's like, no, no, no. And he has a big staff and all this. Um, when you read that story, uh, sort of what metaphorical seed do you think needs to be parted in our world right now? Or and another way of thinking that might be like, what do we as a society need to cross in order to be free, to seek, to get freedom? Ooh. I'm not sure if I've got a ready answer for that, except for this. That sea was impossible to part. Mm. And I think that's, if, if nothing else, that's a good place to start. No human power could part that sea then, and no human power could part it today. So when you ask that question, what C needs to be parted, I don't think we should limit our answer to that question to the things that we can imagine doing ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I know, RG, you live in Minnesota, land of 10,000 lakes. <laughs> I, I think we all live in the land of 10,000 seas of that need to be parted. There are There are so many different dynamics or realities within our society or in even in our own lives that could be associated with this. And each of us might know for us what that is. Um, but to Dave's point, I, I was thinking about this, about the sea in this, in this moment uh, in Exodus as, as really being representative of sort of the limit of our imagination, the limit of our hope, the limit mm. of what we believe to be possible. Uh, as a people, um, and then God showing us that those are our own limits. That for God, those are not limits, and we can be led beyond that. So I, so I wonder, for us, as we say, think about collectively, what are the seas that need parting? Perhaps asking ourselves, what are the sort of what are the certainties that we refuse to question, either for or in the world around us. What are the things that just feel so given that we don't even challenge them? And, and yeah, I know that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I and it's interesting how the story starts, right? That people are that the people are saying, you know, we'd rather be slaves. How did we get to this moment? It was easier when we were slaves. And um, I think we're all we've all been called to these moments of wondering, like did I move forward in the right way? Maybe the thing that seemed right is so hard that not do, not having done the right thing in the past would have been better. And, um, mm. and I've, I've sort of experienced that in different ways that during this time more so this past year than other times in my life. And I know of, you know, through conversations with others that that's kind of a common theme where people are like, how did we get here? I made these choices and they were for good and they were I was making them for the right reasons and I was following the right person and or the right sort of vision but now I'm here and I don't I feel like going back I know going back is not exactly right but I don't know how to go forward so thinking about being in that stuck place and what happens when we open open that stuck place up and just and just say it right like God didn't turn God's back on on them because they were they had those thoughts and verbalized them 
and in fact did exactly the opposite. And to me, that's just um, incredibly important <laughs> this year and always, but this year in particular. That's such a good point. You think about how long Israel had been in Egypt. Everyone that Moses mm. led out was born into generational slavery. Mm -hmm. And so they mm -hmm. had habits of life and, and habits of economy and of education and of identity that seemed natural probably because they'd been that way for generation after generation. So someone comes along and says, I want to set you free. You can imagine a lot of people saying, I don't want to be set free. I don't even understand what you mean by freedom. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. I had thought about like some of the things to cross would be like, you know, right now our country is so divided and we have those two sides that you kind of think about it, um, you know, whether they be political or whatever. And then, and it seems like everybody always thinks there needs to be two sides. Like they might be talking about something that maybe doesn't really have two sides, but they always have to get somebody from quote unquote, the other side. Um, <clears throat> and maybe some things that we need to cross those things, like maybe like racism and misogyny and, you know, all these different kinds of things. And I think sometimes, again, we can't necessarily do it just on our own. It's something that maybe we need divine inspiration from or divine help from, right. To get, to get there. And the Holy spirit definitely needs to come and intervene. Um, I was reading this again and I noticed the ending and I hadn't noticed it before. And it talked about Miriam grabbing the tambourine and start singing and dancing and stuff. And um, there's always something I'm noticing as I'm reading these. And so I'm just kind of wondering, um, like, what do you think is the significance of that? I want to say just um, that the celebrations of my childhood were always led by women and the mm -hmm. women were the ones that instigated them and that kept them going. And so um, to me, it's just a really beautiful image of we got we got there. We weren't sure that we wanted to get there. We weren't sure we wanted to be free in the first place. And we're there and there's this this um, celebration that happens. And uh, to me, it's a celebration of sort of the women's role in the story. Um, what a beautiful point to make to think that this conflict began with the conflict between two men, one of whom was saved by two women. <laughs> and, and then yeah. when they get to the other side of the sea, it's the women who lead the, the celebration. Never thought of that before. Mm. Thank you. And I think there's a, there's a through line of, of women being the, the, the voice of celebration in, in other parts of Hebrew scripture, uh, Deborah mm -hmm. and Judith. And, and there are some other instances as well where uh, women sing the victory songs or make music or cry out um, with gladness to God. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, it, similar to what has been said, I was, I was thinking about that. The, the honoring of women's voices as the keepers of stories and also mm -hmm. the sort of uh, their role in the in the shaping of of story and meaning making in a community uh, because you have you know you have the exodus event like a thing happens but then just as significant as the thing itself is the story that we tell about it mm, and the story mm -hmm. that we find the meaning and thus we find ourselves and mm -hmm. so to sort of centralize the voices of women in uh, in what it means to be people of the exodus 
uh, I think is is a is a really strong affirmation of of women's voices in scripture, which goodness mm. knows we need to find and affirm and honor every chance we mm -hmm. get. Mm -hmm. It occurred to me a few years ago, uh, back when I was uh, I was working through the the book of Job, that Job begins with this conflict between male voices. And, uh, and in particular, Job and his and his three friends and mm -hmm. Job's sons have property. But the book ends with the naming of his daughters and giving mm -hmm. them an inheritance equal to the sons. And it's this this radical revolutionary moment. And so Shaniqua asks us this question and it, it occurs to me this, that that's Mark's gospel as well. Right the men who have been following Jesus are mm -hmm. holed up and hiding mm -hmm. and the women venture out and come back with the good news, which is kind of like, I mean, Jesus making the first missionary a woman. Uh, I mean, uh, in, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the woman at the well, uh, and, and in so many cases, Jesus saying, this is where, this is how my voice my, and my word is being carried forward. Why is that so hard for us to grasp? Why is it so hard for me to grasp? <laughs> Let me move on to the gospel because you both kind of mentioned it. Um, so uh, I tend, I'm probably going to butcher this person's name, but it's like Jürgen Moltmann who said, without women preachers, we would have no knowledge of the resurrection. What does it mean to you or maybe in your social location or what does it mean to you in general that it was women who first learned of Jesus's resurrection? So in the Orthodox tradition, the only time women ever step up even close to the altar, they're not allowed beyond the doors and, and next right beside the altar, but is um, at Good Friday when girls dress in white and go up and um, bless the tomb. And then again at the Easter vigil when the girls are the ones that go up and get the light and pass it around the congregation. So, I mean, for me growing up, really wanting to be a priest and knowing that wasn't possible, those moments when girls were centralized <laughs> and made beautiful and they were the carriers of the light, the ones that, that passed out the light was so meaningful and important. And I think maybe the, the only reason I stayed connected to the church, to be honest, that I knew that there was this story of women um, attending, going to attend to the body in this really physical way and then coming back with this, this news of um, God's love being so much bigger than than Jesus's body and um and yeah so that's that's a very personal answer to your question Shaniqua but um hopefully appropriate absolutely appropriate that's an amazing answer I uh I have a a deep love and uh I would say ongoing relationship with Mary that that is part of my devotional life and my spirituality mm -hmm. and in in Mary, we see uh, a, a, obviously a fundamental sort of key role of a woman uh, giving birth to God. Right? We call her Mary, the Mother of God, uh, the God Bearer, and and yet she is not alone in that. I, I think the, we have these other instances where women are are also called into these roles of of birthing, of bringing into being, um, of generating God's word into creation. And so I would say we see that 
in the example of Miriam that we just talked about. She is generating God's word, the proclamation of God's word and purposes into being in that moment of her song. And the, these women at the tomb are, yes, they're, in, they're there to anoint a body, but they're also, I think, almost like midwives to the resurrection. And, mm-hmm. uh, so mm-hmm. these 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 images of of the centrality of women, I think, are we they're there if we look for them if we if we look for them with eyes to see and ears to hear, um, and and I would say that they also let's let's maybe not just say oh well you know this sort of male God the Father decided to bestow this favor on a woman. To, to play this role in his plan. But why not let us also use these moments to invite us into an image of a God who is also mother, who is also mm-hmm. given birth, who is mm-hmm. evoking her own self in these moments of, of birth and creation and midwi- midwifery. Um, mm-hmm. I, think there's, I think there's a lot there. And uh, I'm so glad that it is captured in this resurrection account. One thing that I think is so interesting about the, you know, the four, the different versions of the resurrection that we have about Mark's gospel is that the women at the end are, the way it's translated, and I think it's an unfortunate translation, is that they're so afraid that they don't say anything. But if you look at the original Greek, it's thromoske ecstasis, which is basically like trembling and ecstasy. So they are so overcome by this moment of mm. the empty tomb, of seeing the empty tomb, that they they don't they can't speak. Of course, we know later that they do, but that they do tell the story and that the story is passed on. But um, but the thing that I love about if you look at the original Greek and that would it actually what the real reason right that they that they didn't speak right away it reminds me um, it's sort of like this cyclical thing. I, I I'm thinking about this because you brought up the mother of God. Um, that Mary cherishing all of these things in her heart in the in the story the birth story right this idea that it is okay for women and people and everyone to be silent with their joy and with their ecstasy and that 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 is a necessary step um, and that there's fear in that too it's not all about joy the, the fear is mixed in the trembling's mixed in but um, that that being present with that is a way forward that you can't get to the point where you're sharing the good news or you're you're um, working for social justice or you're um, deeply listening to someone to help them to move forward without without the silence and the presence so I just I wanted to call attention to that because it was something that bothered me for so many years until one year I listened carefully when the Greek version of the story was read and I was like whoa this isn't it doesn't say fear actually right Um, and it's it's just it was a big awakening or opening for me anyway yeah that's that's a really nice point. There's a there's a related word that's used to describe the reaction of the crowds at the moment of Pentecost, and that that ecstasis mm. or the uh, or the, uh, the the other words like it, the ek is outside of, and stasis is standing, and it's it's oh. like it's not so much that they're afraid; it's like they almost are beside themselves, literally standing outside of themselves, beside themselves with wonder. Uh, with um, mm-hmm. with with amazement and 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 we can imagine that in in all the positive ways delight for instance mm-hmm. and gosh shouldn't the gospel mm-hmm. and do were that witnesses. to us yeah mm-hmm. 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 
Yeah, we, we're called to be witnesses. And if we can actually be fully present as witnesses, we can we know what to do then. We know what, what our response should be. Right. You know, I, this passage in, in the Gospel of Mark, it has me wondering as well, where would I have been in that mm-hmm. moment? I have a feeling I would have been hanging out with all of the men in the hiding. <laughs> so if you want to see fear, right? I mean, that's that's where I would have been. And here the women have gone to do something that feels so uh, honorific, but also the kind of thing that you could imagine giving up. Well, you're going to go anoint the body. Well, does it really need to be anointed? I mean, isn't that one of those frivolous things that maybe in pandemic times we don't need to do? But because the women go to anoint the body to do this thing that seems so menial, they're the ones who are the first to hear the good news. I wonder sometimes what what does that look like for us today right now not just as a historic story from 2000 years ago but what bodies should we be anointing right now that's a great question i wish i had a great answer yeah i'm thinking about some of like the the folks who've died in the past year that you know like um i I, we just did the good friday episode recently and i was thinking about if you um some of the folks that have been killed by the police and some of those narratives parallel very closely with Jesus's crucifixion, um, you know, and that they're both killed by people who work for the government or um, I, they both called out to their mother. Um, mm. And um, sometimes I think about that and how are, I think, you know, as soon as something like that happens, the police or the government quick is quick to like say all the things that they've done wrong or why that person deserved to die in some ways. And um, when really we should be anointing that body and figuring out, you know, how, how can we make sure this doesn't happen? And how can we comfort the family who, who sustained this loss? Yeah, yeah. this this year um, I uh, lost a teacher um, and mentor and friend, um, an indigenous man in, in Guatemala, Don Reginaldo Chayashwesh, who has taught me for a decade uh, and who has taken care of his people for eight decades. And the not being able to travel, not being able to go to his funeral, uh, knowing that he died of COVID, not being able to wrap my arms, arms around his son, my friend, Adedito, um, it just, it, it feels such a, like such a heavy year. Mm. And um, I, it, I find myself really, really wanting to get to Guatemala so that I can, so that I can embrace my friend, so that I can visit Don Reginaldo's grave. Um, and that, that, that urgency, that tension inside my heart leaves me, um, also wondering, okay, if that way has been blocked, if I can't go that way, what does it look like for me to express that same care and concern for people around me? And RG was just, she brought up the word ecstasy uh, and, you know, standing outside of oneself before it, 
it's it's too easy for me to get caught up in how I feel about my loss and to forget the loss that other people have experienced, to focus on the fact that I can't mourn the way that I want to mourn and forget that other people around me might be mourning in ways that I don't observe because I'm attending so much to my own mourning. Hmm. There's something wonderful about the liturgy that brings us together to allow us to mourn together. And of course, with the Easter vigil to prepare to celebrate together as well. I think in the story that you shared, Dave, though, your, your desire to be there, to honor your friend, to console the family and to, and to honor and process your own grief. You know, we have a choice with the things that we grieve and the ways that we receive grief. We can, you know, turn in on ourselves and let that grief sort of harden us and, and consume us, or we can, it can be its own sort of form of drawing us out out beyond mm. ourselves, out towards others uh, in service. And, and that's what these women in the resurrection story are doing. They are, they are honoring their grief. They're honoring their love by going out. Um, and through that, through walking that path, they encounter life. Uh, they encounter the resurrected reality um, in a way that those, the men <laughs> who are unwilling to face their grief perhaps in this story, uh, who are, have closed themselves off literally and figuratively, um, they, they are not the first to encounter life in that mm -hmm. way. And I wonder what that says to, uh, to Shaniqua's point about, you know, the, the violence and the tragedy of, of this year, whether it is the pandemic or our reckoning with racism in the, in the United States or, you know, any number of other things. To what extent will we ever be able to learn from or be liberated from those things as a society until we face them, until we grieve them properly? Uh, I, mm -hmm. And I think that our liturgy and our common life together as Christians is one way that hopefully we can do that and model that process for other people. I think at our best, mm. that's what we can do. Mm -hmm. At our best, our liturgy and our common life is a means of letting even our grief uh, guide us, guide us outward. Mm -hmm. And and the one really beautiful thing about the gospel too is that I mean many things, but that um, the women prepare so carefully, and then they're just sort of running there, and all of a sudden they think, "Who's gonna who's gonna roll away the stone?" Right? Like. Did they not realize there was a stone there? This was not a logical pursuit, right? It was, it was about ritual. It was about connection. It was about love. Um, and it wasn't about like, let's think this through and what's the best way to approach this situation, right? And so um, with it's, it's really easy to intellectualize racism in the United States. And I think we do need to intellectualize it to some extent and to understand, you know, how, how it came to be and what, what our role is in it. But it's also really important to just like run to the body and, and not worry about how the stone's going to get rolled away. You know, that the stone, the stone will get rolled away. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um, and same with, with all of our losses, personal and collective. They ran to do the impossible. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. pretty wonderful. 
and we get to speak their names still. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. Probably that speaking of names really matters, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Definitely. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome. Mm -hmm. I'm also thinking now about our earlier comments about the sea, uh, about in the in the Exodus account and sort of running up to the edge of the sea, not knowing how it what will happen, but but doing it because one's grief, one's longing compels one to do so. Um, mm -hmm. And when you reach that limit, the limit of possibility, God parts the waters, God opens the tomb. And mm -hmm. what, what might we discover if we let our longing and our grief and our desire uh, carry us out? Mm -hmm. I heard somebody preach about... Um, it was at the first AME church in, uh, I think, Oakland or Berkeley. I can't remember, I think. And she was talking about um, the specifically the story of um, Isaac, uh, Abraham and Isaac. And um, she compared it to this thing on the airplane, the ENS system that helps and guides the plane to land, even if it's completely foggy or clouded over and how you have to have all this faith to do that and how Abraham had faith in God. And as we're talking about this, I think about all the people who had faith that this is just what they need to do, going to the tomb without knowing how the stones can be rolled away, going to the edge of the water. And she talked about, it was just, it was a very moving sermon. I'm remembering now all these years later, I guess not that many years later, but quite a few years later, um, how strong faith is. Mm -hmm. What do you, what do you think, um, like what is something that you wish was resurrected and RG, I think I think it was you. One of you talked about resurrecting something inside of us, but what are some things that you mm -hmm. think could be resurrected or need to be resurrected? I think um, resurrecting a sense of ecstasy, of um, both in the sense of ecstasy as in great joy and in the sense of witness um, that we've been moved. It seems like everyone has experienced this pandemic either as moving really, really fast, which is how I've been experiencing it as a parent and someone who's um, continued to work through it, but worked in different ways, um, or really slowly for lots of people who um, became more isolated, lost their jobs, et cetera. Um, either way, the days kind of rolled together and get messy and um, without ritual and without returning to the the sense of being a witness like what am I actually witnessing right now beyond my own experience of this moment and then what does that call me to do and then also finding uh, moments of ecstasy moments of pure wonder and joy and they're there and they're always there right but being able to be present with them those are the things that I am thinking about in when we talk about what are we resurrecting within ourselves mm -hmm. at this time This might be a, a, an odd thing to to mention here, but I've been reading the philosopher Richard Rorty a lot lately. He talks about uh, a passage from John Steinbeck where you've got two people. One of them has a little bit of bread and one of them has none. And one way of looking at that situation is that you've got one very hungry person and one person who's a little bit hungry. But another way of looking at that is that you've got two people who have a little bit of bread to share. And Rorty was... Um, uh, was he described himself and was thought of as an atheist for most of his life. But in one of his last two books, he wrote it with a Christian philosopher. And Rorty said, in fact, the two of us have an awful lot in common. And 
I think that the best way that I can describe what we have in common would be to quote from 1 Corinthians 13. So what Rorty wishes were resurrected, if you will, and what I would wish for would be something like that kind of love that has us looking at the little bit of bread that we have and saying, we've got a little bit of bread to share rather than the economy is not doing what I want it to do. So I'd better hoard a little bit for myself or, uh, mm. you know, that there's only so much vaccine to go around and I'd better get in line to get my shot or whatever it might be. That sense of toilet paper. Love. <laughs> yeah. With toilet paper, that sense of love that says we're, we're in this together. We're, uh, maybe not, uh, in, in, the, in, in always, but uh, yeah, that, that we're in this together, and that we we have things to share with one another. I think I I, I had a tough time thinking about this question, Shaniqua. Honestly, uh, I think because I'm a bit suspect of our human capacity to name what needs to be resurrected. For me, resurrection mm. is so very much of God. Uh, mm -hmm. It, is, it mm -hmm. is for us to bear witness to, but not to shape according to our preferences um, or our our sense of what is most needed. So I could I could name lots of probably things that I think would be swell that I'd like you know and be sort of like let's bring back X Y Z and maybe some of those are good, maybe some of those are better for me than for other people. So I mm -hmm. I, I I think for me as I as I sit with that question I. I think less about what I, Phil, wants to see resurrected and more about how can I open my eyes to what is already always mm. resurrected constantly, uh, quite often in ways that I refuse to see or that I'm too afraid to see or that mm. I've insulated myself from seeing um, because I'm distracted by other things. Uh, mm -hmm. I, think, I think God's resurrection is a is a statement of fundamental reality. It is it is simply what is. God resurrects, mm -hmm. and Christ mm -hmm. came back because God is a resurrecting God, and that reality is available to us then, now, and always until the end of history. And so, mm -hmm. I think for me, at least for this Easter, I I want to know. What it what is it that is being resurrected by God that I I can recognize um, or or that is that is drawing me out uh, of myself of my fear of my complacency uh, to participate in um, mm. and there are probably lots that's of that. beautiful sorry that is so beautiful and and so right I think um, that we we are called to be witnesses to the resurrection and then to participate in it in ways that um that on rather than creating it but honor it honor it the fact that everything is resurrected all the time and um and it brings me back to the ezekiel passage that i've had this love-hate relationship with all these years <laughs> um and and the idea you know the four the breath comes from the four winds at the end of that passage and um and this idea that there's, there is breath there, there is resurrection, and it's beyond our capacity to create. But, but if we're there and we're, we're the ones voicing it, we're the ones saying the words, but God's the one, the, God is doing the work. Um, yeah. I was thinking about resurrecting community and 
um, and maybe it's mm-hmm. bad. I know people tell me nostalgia can be sometimes bad, but I'm remembering like as a child, um, for a period of time, I was Greek Orthodox. And one of the things I loved was this powerful sense of community that the Easter vigil held. And as a mm-hmm. little kid, like you'd start the service, but we were little. And so usually our parents would bring us upstairs and they'd have little blankets laid out and we could fall asleep. And then usually <laughs> they'd wake us up right when like all the fun stuff was happening and the communion was happening. And then we went downstairs and we'd all get to eat like all these things that we hadn't eaten for all of Lent essentially. <laughs> and so there's like cheese, pasta and meat and all of the, these delicious foods that we hadn't had for so long. And it just, I like miss that I think, and I'm, I'm as I'm reflecting on it. And um, in seminary, I was at Church of the Advent of Christ the King, which is this very Anglo-Catholic nosebleed high church. And I remember how serious everybody took that liturgy. And like it started, I think at like nine or something. We didn't get done with the service until like two a.m. Um, but how powerfully transformative people's expressions and their um, their whole demeanor changed after the Easter vigil. Like this, this woman who's usually kind of stodgy, like I said, Christos Anesti, and she actually came up and gave me a hug, which I would never have expected. You know, she usually mm-hmm. wore like her white gloves and her mantilla and everything. And it was this very transformative experience for her and for me in that, in that context. Mm-hmm. What do you think is um, some good news that we're called to share, whether it be something Christian related or in society or, I think you just said it, Christos Anesti, Christ is risen. And I I don't want to say that in some sort of trite way. I don't think that good news has gotten old yet. Mm -hmm. Mm. And uh, as uh, I I think it was, uh, Phil was saying this before, we've got these old stories that are still just ripe for us to read them again and again in new ways and recognize that God is at work in, in God's word and in God's world. That's pretty amazing. When you ask the question, what do we want to see resurrected? My first thought, Shaniqua, was my mom. Uh, mm. You know, and then, uh, mm-hmm. but just as Phil was saying, that that's not something that I get to command, but it is something that I hope to witness. And that's mm-hmm. pretty wonderful. That thought, it, it frees me from not having to be the one to try to bring somebody back from the dead. And it sets me free to be the one who watches God at work in the world. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the coolest. Right. <laughs> I feel silly saying that's so cool, but it's so cool. It is cool. It is. It is. <laughs> And it, I think it's great for us, you know, our, our formal liturgy notwithstanding, to have that sort of jubilation of, you know, you know, children entering the kingdom of heaven. This it is it is way cool. And and I agree with you, Dave. I think for me, the good news to share is simply that the good news it never changes. Everything feels like it's changing in the world around us, and maybe every generation feels that way. But I know it feels that way right now. Um, so maybe the best news that we can offer is that this is the thing that does not change. Mm. This is the thing mm. that is always true. Mm-hmm. Resurrection mm-hmm. will always happen. It is always happening. And, mm-hmm. and that's, that's great. That's really cool. 
I think the other thing, the other good news that's important to share is that the story is never over. The story is both always mm -hmm. coming back and repeating itself, but it's also never over. And so when I think about what it means to be a participant, a witness to, and then a participant in the resurrection, it's about um, what it, living that story out in my own life um, in whatever ways makes sense day to day, what, you know, um, and then, and then thinking about how do I connect with others as the story progresses to, to continue that unfolding mm. that is. Yeah. So, um, my closing question, uh, well, let me say one thing first. And I was, as you were talking, I was thinking about, um, of course, right. We're all, we, as Christians, at least we believe we're all going to be resurrected. And, um, I think Lakota people, we, I don't know if we have always thought that same thing, but we all knew that we would see each other again. And that's why in most indigenous languages, there's no word for goodbye. Um, because we know that we will see each other again. It's so like, Dave, you will see your mother again. We just know that. Um, my question is, do you have any tips for preaching Easter Vigil this year? What, if any, wisdom you'd like to impart to folks listening? I think it's important to, to you know, I'm, I'm the one person here who is probably not going to be. <laughs> um, but as, a, as someone who, I mean, I've done guest sermons and things like that, but as someone who's going to be, be there hearing, I want to hear how the story Un, is unfolding now, but I also want to hear how it's always unfolding. Um, mm. And and I, do, I don't think you can, I think it would be a disservice to the congregation to not name the ways that this year has been different than others and to not, um, not call to light all of the things that have come to a head, our inability to deal with. Um, this racism that's been so systemic, our our inability to uh, to deal with the environmental devastation that we're facing, and um, our inability to to manage this pandemic that you know we all think should be manageable but isn't really manageable. And then, what? How does the resurrection story intersect with those and all other? Um, I'm not sure I was very articulate, but I think it's important to think about the resur resurrection story in the context of what has happened mm. in our lives, our collective lives in the last year and not to, to preach a sermon that could be preached any year, I guess. Mm. And I'm not sure it, it's okay to disagree with me on that, by the way, <laughs> if anyone else has, has another thought about maybe that isn't what we want. Maybe we want something that's, that's bigger than that. Right? Why? I hear you. I've, I've heard a lot of people in my parish, I think even more so than last year, because I think the shock of everything was fresh last year during Holy Week, mm -hmm, still mm -hmm. figuring out what this all was, uh, this pandemic situation. Um, and, and it's really this year where I hear people sort of uh, a, a sense of deep sadness because they're already thinking, oh, Holy Week's coming. It's not going to be the same. We're missing our liturgy. We're missing the traditions. And I, I, I sense that in, in my community here. Um, and maybe that's, that's probably true for, for other communities as well. And so I, I think in addition to what you, what you were saying, Audrey, I, I would say that our liturgy is a way of us 
expressing our participation in what God is doing and what God has done in, in the resurrection. Mm-hmm. But God mm-hmm. does it anyway. God mm-hmm. meets us where we are and we, God breaks into our lives. God breaks out of the tomb, no matter what our liturgy looks like. Um, God doesn't require perfect order, perfect precision, perfect choreography in order for the joy of Easter to be present. Um, Mm -hmm. And the invitation for us there is to, to perhaps find, find the resurrection joy in, in the middle of complexity uh, versus uh, the ways that we're accustomed to having it and to know that that's okay. That, mm-hmm. that, that the first resurrection itself was a mixture of weeping and of laughter. Um, and so it may be for us as well. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. I think there's a way that every one of the readings for Easter Vigil can be read as a story of the world turned upside down. Mm. <clears throat> one of them, obviously, the story of creation doesn't sound so very bad because it's the world becoming some, a place of order. But in each one of these things, there's this radical change. And we're also told in each of the stories that it's a radical change that takes time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we mm-hmm. often see that the time and, and imagine how long it took for Noah to build that ark or how long it took for Moses to persuade the people mm. to follow him. We know how long it took him to persuade Pharaoh to let the, the people go. And imagine how long it felt for the disciples who saw Jesus on the cross and then a day or two later he still wasn't back and it probably felt like an eternity like just a slow eternity and hasn't this year felt like that and in each of those stories there is an, a reminder that we get to observe God at work in a world that seems to be in tumult and turning upside down mm-hmm. and that we get to participate in that through the small things of putting one more peg into a gopher wood arc of holding up a staff <laughs> over the over the ocean while the wind blows of watching the, the dry bones rattle and sinews form uh, just these are, these, are, these are small acts of participation, sometimes just of participation by bearing witness, but don't they all matter? And it matter, don't mm-hmm. they all matter infinitely? Mm-hmm. Indeed. So thank you everyone for participating and I really appreciate you being here with me today. Thank you. Thank you. It was wonderful, a great conversation. Likewise, thank you. (laughs) If you want to learn more about Beloved Community, visit episcopalchurch.org forward slash beloved hyphen community. Thanks to our guests, Phil, Argy, and David. Thanks also to our production team, especially Chris and Phoebe. If you heard a resurrection message today, please rate, review, and of course, share our podcast. Until next time, let your light shine.
You're invited to join thousands of Episcopalians, neighbors, and friends this summer at the Love Always Revival at the KFC Yum Center in Louisville, Kentucky. On Saturday, June 22nd, get immersed in inspiring worship and community, deepen your love for God, kick off the 81st General Convention, and extend a warm welcome to folks discovering the Episcopal Church. The revival is free to attend, so bring your friends. If you're from a neighboring diocese, check in with your diocesan revival champion to find out about group travel options. You can find more information along with registration at iam.ec lovealways.